0: This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is telehealth or online access to therapy, and it's available around the globe. All you have to do is fill out a quick online survey, and they'll match you with a licensed counselor within 24 hours. And if you don't like that counselor for any reason, you can switch free of charge. It's never been a better time to work on the issues that are keeping you stuck. So if you feel that you're blocked from happiness or there are things that you feel like you need to work through with a counselor, try BetterHelp. If you also want to help out this show, head to trybetterhelp.com slash me for 10% off your first month of therapy. Thanks. This show is also brought to you by the new podcast from political commentator and Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson called Passing Judgment. It's a show all about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. Join Jessica and her guests as they talk about the biggest political and legal issues of the day and how they affect our daily lives. Jessica and a rotating group of professors, journalists, politicians, and others will tackle some big issues like what are the laws of our democracy? How are they changing? And what does this mean for you? I hope you'll listen and enjoy Passing Judgment. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi friends! Sorry for the delay in posting this episode. If you follow me on Instagram, then you will know that it's because I just had a baby. And she is two weeks old and super adorable. Uh, She also likes to eat every hour, which means mama no sleep. Um, Anywho, that's why it's taken me a while to finish writing this episode. And I hope you enjoy it. So this is all about feeling not good enough or constantly fixating on an identity that is lower Less than, losery, has been, lazy, fill in the blank negative adjective. And what I'm describing is something in part caused by our negativity bias, that just part of us that scans for threat and fixates on the negative. And in some ways, that is a positive in that it can be healthy that we are hardwired to be productive and goal oriented. Um, But it also just means we tend to only care about what we didn't do right or what we didn't win or what we can still attain versus feeling good about our successes. So in short, a negativity bias is that tendency we humans have to fixate on um, the negative over the positive or a threat to ego over success. And it's just a fact. People by default dread losses more than they savor gains and we have a better memory for things that go wrong than things that go right. It's the reason that bronze winners are happier more often than silver winners, silver medal winners, um, because people who win silver feel like they really lost gold. But not feeling good enough or fixating on a less-than story habitually is more than just a negativity bias. It's also an identity. It's like a secret truth, one that you subconsciously adhere to. And it's kind of like what becomes the explanation for all things in your life and it gets repeated back to you in your head whenever you're rejected or you're complimented for that matter it's kind of a story that restates what you lack and interprets the subtext subtext of every situation so it's pretty much like building a small fence around your life because it dictates how far you're willing to strive, how much money you're willing to ask for, how bold you act at work And what possibilities you even see as open to you as an individual. Which sucks. Because it's a story ultimately created by you. It can be reinforced by the outside world. um, But you have the ultimate authorship and power to affirm or reject it. So if you are telling yourself the wrong story. Or you want to tune in, tune up the habits you have around negative narratives about yourself. Then this is an episode for you. As with all of my episodes, there are three parts. The what, the why, and the how, the tools. Part one, the what. Thoughts that run through your mind when you should otherwise feel happy or confident that are, you know, intrusive and belittling. And maybe these thoughts are, you know, they're you know that they're not p- kind or positive, but some part of you also feels like they help you stay sharp, like they give you an edge, and without them you might not work as hard. Or you might feel like they are keeping you safe, like they keep you grounded and not risking too much. And they probably also feel just true, like you're just reporting reality to yourself in the face of anything that might keep, might make you feel too grand or too hopeful. So many thoughts are just like reminders of how you should really feel in the face of any information that contradicts the embodied beliefs. like your rep- reptilian brain is saying, hey, hey, don't start to risk hope. That means you're going to get hurt. Just stay here in the mud where it's safe. Where you, We know how to be down here. So it's, it's like kind of a seductive um, position to be in, be, uh, staying in a state of not good enough. Because it's low risk, it means we are the masters of our fate and of our pain. And when we can control any pain source, it's much less stressful. It's also a way to remain invisible and keep yourself out of scrutiny, like out of the spotlight of your life in any number of ways. It's also a way to not feel like you have to try to be the best, like subconsciously you're allowing yourself to hide. Our thoughts and inner script are what create our limits and our experienced worth as a person. It's also what others sense as our worth and react to. So in many ways, Our thoughts about ourselves dictate our value as a person and our power in this world. So you can think of this script we have as kind of like a set point. It's like a currency that is constantly echoed back to the world by how we react to others, how we set boundaries, and how we treat ourselves um, and we allow ourselves to be treated. So sometimes these thoughts occur and they are immediately resetting something after something that is, is overly positive occurs. You know, it's almost like we might have a reaction to a compliment, one that immediately removes the effects of that compliment. It resets us back to the comfortable status. For example, like if someone tells you, you did a really good job, your mind might say, mm, yeah, but you're just saying that because you feel obligated. Or, mm, yeah, but you don't really know what good is anyway. So we're constantly trying to return to our set point in the face of any experiences that might contradict it. So these thoughts might also take on the form of negative ruminations. So depre- depressive ruminations are basically dysfunctional thoughts about the causes and also the implications of negative emotions. And they're, they tend to be really repetitive and intrusive and they're really difficult to disengage from. So they're sticky thoughts that haunt us. And they very much train in a physical state of feeling. Like they they tell us to practice feeling bad about ourselves in mind, body, and soul. And rumination is like the key ingredient in chronic depression. It's basically when you overthink past situations and you look for negative interpretations of what caused the situation or what came of the situation. So this negative storytelling, it's like a broken record. And if you're not sure if you are a person who ruminates, a good test is if I were to give you the assignment of doing some meditation and you found that you could not do it without a kind of negative story popping into your mind, that would be negative rumination at work. It's really disruptive um, and doesn't seem to abide when we are trying to strive for a sense of inner calm and focus. So with negative rumination and just regular negative scripts we have about ourselves, what we are doing is rehearsing a feeling, practicing feeling a certain way about ourselves. It just becomes like a character we enact in the play that is our life. We read lines as this feeling, we enact what the feeling looks like, and thus we become it. Even if we don't see it, it's very much at work in our subconscious, And therefore it guides the course of our lives. And what we do in the process is place happiness, lovableness, and worthiness just dangling on a string attached to a stick that is just a foot away from the front of our face. Like it's just out there. We can reach it if we could finally achieve XYZ. But that goal always moves just a little further away. And so we exist comfortably in that discomfort of feeling not good enough. That is Ada, by the way. So I say that it's comfortable in the discomfort because for most of us, it is much more comfortable here because it's familiar and it means we're not risking any unseen or unexpected disappointment. So we keep ourselves in a familiar state and it's predictable. It's in our control and we are safe. Our brains are wired, after all, to predict and protect us from danger, first and foremost, unseen danger. Which brings me to part two, the why. Well, there are five things that I've organized <laughs> to tell you about. Um, chemical obsession, identified with negative ruminations, an unseen belief system, and social anxiety, and internalized oppression. So we will go into a little bit of detail on each of those things. So the first one, chemical obsession, by that I mean glucose and hormones, And how those things affect one's ability to stop obsessing. Um, So that is like basically adrenaline is the focusing hormone that gives you the ability to kind of make sure you're not in danger. It's what our body gives us to fuel us to be able to ensure we are safe. But unstable blood sugar levels will cause your body to release adrenaline and cortisol as just a way to sustain energy so if there's a drop in your blood sugar levels the body will release adrenaline as like an, a substitute to fuel your brain functioning so un, whenever i talk about blood glucose like that is such a big key piece of whether or not you are emotionally regulated because if we don't have the ability to kind of have self control or we don't have the ability to sustain like a regular mood everything is compromised our ability to handle stress, our ability to um basically not react at our as our base level selves. Um our ability to complete tasks without having a breakdown, like it's it affects so many things. So if you get not let's say you get terrible sleep, less sleep means more stress hormones and less insulin, and insulin is what regulates your blood sugar. So parts of the brain, one, the orbital cortex, which is just like above your eye sockets, it's hyperactive in humans that have OCD. And experiments with monkeys have shown that damage to this part of the brain leads to repetitive behaviors. So it's almost like we're getting warning signals from the brain to take action, and once we we take the action, that that light is supposed to turn off. Like you're Your brain is supposed to be able to go back to normal. But in people who have um, damage or if a hyperactive orbital cortex, that light will stay on. So your brain is still having, like, you still have the warning signal to take action. So that's why one of the most effective OCD treatments is behavioral therapy, which basically helps us to ignore that signal, ignore that light. And basically tolerate it in increasing increments of time. And by that I mean like the thing that you're you're pushed to do. Which in, in this situation I'm talking about obsession. Like by replaying something. Fixating on it. Retelling it to ourselves. Um, recounting it. Uh, not being able to stop thinking about something. That's like the light staying on. So when we are able to do learn with the help of like a therapist, for example, to tolerate that thought in increasing increments of time, it actually changes our brain's chemistry and it changes what lights up in our brain. So it changes the activity as well. So when you, what, in short, what this means is when you can change your response to something, you can actually change your brain's chemistry and you can change the way your brain behaves. So it matters how you react to kind of the compulsions that occur in your brain. So the gist of this one is blood glucose, meaning your actual energy level, and that has something to do with um, stress, sleep, diet, and the hormones that are, whether they're in balance or out of balance, all of those have a huge effect on your ability to... Stop obsessing about things that are negative or react to negative intrusive thoughts in a way that is helpful to you or in a way that exacerbates them. So those are, those are just factors to be aware of. Second one on my list, a lack of a soothing inner voice. So by that, I mean, when, if you have um, a thought that is like, you know, let's say a very cruel, negative thought, it's part of, one of the main causes can be a lack of, um, individuation. And by that, I mean like when we have not been able to separate from our family of origin in a way that is, I would call it like adult and mature. So what that means is like, we have a, some part of ourselves does not trust our own thought processes. So we never fully grew up and felt like, I can do this. I can handle life on my own. And another way to describe it is just extreme self-doubt. Because self-doubt begins in the family of origin. Like, do we feel equipped to be independent, healthy adults? So the, the lack of healthy self-esteem and the lack of healthy, positive, comforting self-talk, like the lack of the ability to comfort oneself and um, having that kind of really um, doubtful relationship to one's own thoughts and wisdom, like is the difference between having a maladaptive response and, uh, one that helps you, one that makes you feel like I can take care of myself. So meaning like, if you don't feel like you trust yourself and you feel like I'm a loser, I, I don't know how to take care of myself. I'm always going to, I need somebody else to take care of me. That's the difference between you being able to plug a hole in the boat or not, like, or seek somebody else outside of you to plug it for you. Because what we do is like, if we feel like we can't trust ourselves, what we look for, you know, what else can I put in this hole? That sounds dirty, but like, what else can I plug up this hole in the boat with? How about my scarf? Uh, without it, I I can't live. Like I can't live without the scarf. What else could I use? How about this other person who's much stronger than me? And like by scarf, I mean, you know, we replace the need, um, with something outside of our own love. Like, you know, we replace it with, um, compliments or a badge, like a title or stuff, you know, like I have this fancy car. That means I'm lovable. Like we fill these things with other things outside of ourselves or other people. So if we don't have this soothing inner voice, that's effective and, um, helping ourselves, it means that we are not able to also see our thoughts as just thoughts. It it makes it very hard to combat negative self-talk. I'm just going to give you a little example role play. So there's evil Sarah and there's aware Sarah. Evil Sarah will say like, you're a has-been. Nobody really respects you. Everyone else is more talented, more educated. They have better cred, etc. Whatever those thoughts are going to say. And then aware Sarah, which also exists in me, will say, wow, I'm having some dark thoughts today. I think I have to do some thought conditioning by journaling. And I need to get some sunshine and some exercise. And I also have to go to bed early tonight. And that is sort of like a spelled out version of exactly the types of thought processes I go through several times a day. So my question to you is, do you have both voices? Do you have the kind of evil voice, but also the aware voice that recognizes and separates from the narrative Or do you identify with them? Like, Do you identify with the negative thoughts? Can you see the thoughts for what they really are? Because just being able to see the thoughts for what they really are when they're occurring, the voice of evil Sarah, just to be able to recognize like, there's those evil thoughts again. I don't have to engage with them. That process is, that's a single step of just recognition. But that by default changes the effect of those thoughts on you. Just the simple act of recognizing what they are and separating from them changes their power and potency. Okay, number three on my list. An unseen belief system that I need to be fixed. So this is a a super common belief system that many overachievers hold to be true. And it sounds counterintuitive, but it's actually common in overachievers because those who negate their own needs have the ability to strive harder. And you don't notice you're running yourself into the ground because you don't really have that sensitivity. Like you can't feel your own ouch because you're like using yourself as a tool, you know? So if you can't tell if you have a hidden belief system that you are unworthy of pleasure and joy, then I would ask yourself whether or not you are overly sensitive to criticism. I say that because we scan our environment for things that confirm our hidden fears and also our unconscious beliefs. So when something sticks to us or like it stings, it's because somewhere we think it is true, like it resonates. It lingers because it is something we don't want to acknowledge as true. And it's also something we believe has validity. And if we didn't have this belief, it wouldn't sting. For example, like if someone said to you, you believe in Santa, you might be like, okay, weirdo. Versus, wow, you sure love chocolate. You might be like, what? Why? What do you say that? Is this, is it because of how I look in this shirt? Like it would, if it, if it rang any bell of resonance with you, it would hurt a little bit. You'd be like, wait, wait, what does that mean? It would it would hit somewhere. So also when we have an, and that's if you had an unseen belief system that like you were overweight or something like that. So when we have an unseen belief system that we cannot accept our own success as deserved or the truth of who we are. Like we explain it away as, you know, lucky or because someone else is trying to be nice to us. That type of thought process is often because it's a tendency built in from childhood. Like we we are refusing to accept the nourishment of love and the, and feel confident for fear that it will make us weak, or it will threaten the source of love and nourishment. In other words, like we have, we've developed a pervasive tendency to negate our needs in order to sustain an external source of love. And that is such a powerful um, dynamic in our life that will continue to repeat forever unless we become conscious of it and stop it. And the reason it's so powerful is because it's like survival. It was built into us because we were negating our needs in order to survive and sustain the the source of love from a caregiver that if we did not do this, if we did not negate our own needs, um, our life was literally threatened because we would not be able to get love from that caregiver. It's like we all develop these strategies and ways to get what we need from those who are supposed to take care of us. And so if we have that threatened in any way, we're going to figure out a different strategy to get it. So that's why it sticks so strongly in adulthood. Cause it's like, no, 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 no. This is what I have to do in order to survive. I have to negate myself in order to make sure I can get other people to love me. And all romantic relationships are parallels to our original, um, relationship of love giving love and care to somebody else, which is our parents. So we become permanently cued on recognizing the successes of others and by default, um, our lower status next to that other person. Like that becomes the dynamic that that feels the most true. And that becomes the rule of existence. I am nothing and I need others in order to be whole. So if that last one, this number three, ring any bells of, tiny bells of truth for you, I want to ask you a follow up question, which is, are you seemingly unaffected by your own accomplishments? Like if you accomplish something great, are you somewhat, somewhat happy, but then does it not kind of sink in? Does it not like go past the skin? Because that might signal you have an unseen belief system that is left over from childhood that deserves some much deeper digging, which is like, it just means you're gonna you're starving yourself, unknowns to you, unbeknownst to you. All right, number four on my list: social anxiety. Um, just people with social anxiety suffer greater levels of negative rumination and intrusive thoughts negative intrusive thoughts about themselves. Um, just based on the research, social anxiety is often something found it's co-occurring with depression um, because it's maintained by negative rumination. And depression is. So most important to know is that people with social anxiety far underestimate themselves compared with others who do not have that tendency. Why? Because they are practicing a negative uh, self-perception. And also a practice is recalling previous events that correlate with recent ones to perpetuate the harsh self-image. So it's like a trigger loop that reinforces rumination And it's all aimed at maintaining a negative self-image. So people with social anxiety are looking to confirm fears as a way to feel safer with them. So it kind of triggers and maintains a negative self-image. Why? Because if a person is sensitive to public exposure, then this evokes harsher self-appraisals. So it's like a defense mechanism made of self-feedback. Like, you are doubly feeling the feedback you imagine from the room, which is inaccurate. It's overly harsh. And in the research studies that I read, for whatever this is worth, it's also much more likely to affect women compared with men. I'm not sure what to make of that. But food for thought. All right, number five on my list, internalized oppression, meaning living out the subtext of society's beliefs. So if you are a part of a marginalized population or a discriminated against population, be that due to race, religion, gender, sexual orientation, culture, all of the above, then you are very likely suffering a form of internalized oppression. And I say that because it's almost impossible to be immune to it. Like no matter how confident and strong you are, no matter how, you know, you react to others around you, it will be internalized on some level subconsciously, and it takes an emotional toll. I touched on this topic a little bit in the episode on vicarious trauma, but the short of it is we internalize beliefs about ourselves based on the messages we receive on many levels, conscious and unconscious, from society. And as a starting point to self-examine, I would ask yourself, what are the beliefs I inherited from my family of origin? Like from your parents, for example, like, did you get messages, um, either directly or indirectly from them that like, in order to survive, you needed to be, to try harder than everybody else? Um, did your family demonstrate to you that like, you can't trust authority and that you had to earn respect or earn love? You you didn't just get it by default. And I'm bringing that up not to say that that is not something that they should have said to you. I mean, the main reason I'm calling that out is culturally, we are all receiving messages from all places, from other people, from strangers, from media, from authority figures, from political figures, from policy, um, from the structures of work environments, from public policy. All of these messages are teaching us about our enoughness. And a large portion of the population also has to contend with internalized systemic oppression, and that means it's a belief system that we internalize that's much more insidious because it is a, um, and it's a nuanced and layered inherent belief in our own inferiority, um, or or sometimes our lack of. Um, worthiness or a lack of equality, or, um, maybe we reject that belief, but it'll be reinforced constantly by our surroundings. So if we have internalized something like that, we have to not only reject that belief and then also fight it and fight the effects of it on a conscious level, which in itself causes its own depression. Cause it's like being injured. It's like being aware you're being abused and then having to fight the effects of the abuse and also accept that like, that's reality. And I like that in itself is like a very sad, um, and painful process to go through. And it, I mean, there's a whole episode I could do on just that process in itself, but it's something that we cannot often describe or talk about with others or identify because it's so nuanced and there are all sorts of different kinds of oppression like this that become internalized. And like, for example, just like the, the kind that's inherent in government policies, or it's built into a workplace culture. So if you have internalized a, a negative stri- script about yourself or about someone like you, then it's very difficult to recognize the, the scale of it and the edges of it because it's being reinforced by people around you. And it's also just so interwoven into society that it's like, you can't even like point to it necessarily. So with all of these factors, what is key by all these factors, I mean like one through five, what is key is knowing that the effects of these things on you are flexible. We have agency in this matter. And when we can look at a thought, or we can look at a process that's happening, we can change its effects simply by examining it as a separate entity to us. It's not us. It's a thing that is happening to us. Just that awareness is key in how something affects us physiologically and also in how lasting and powerful its effects are on the course of our life. It's It all comes down to awareness and just curiosity. Not to mention we can get better at managing the effects by self-employing, um, regulation strategies. Like there's a reason that older adults self-report less distress in re- response to just negative, you know, random life events that are negative than middle-aged adults and young adults. And that's because most older adults have seen a situation happen before. Like they know that the outcome of the events, they know what to expect. Therefore they're more integrated and the events become less disruptive and just less severe. Um, it's like less catastrophic because you're like, Oh, I've been here before. We can apply the same expectations and understanding to any other events we want. Just like that. Like we can actually learn about, processes that happen to us and look at like research from other people. We can read books about tools that other people have used. We can see the beginning, middle and end of these negative events that occur in our lives. And then they don't have to be so disruptive anymore. We can be like, no, I'm going to apply this to this thing that happens. It's not going to take me down. We can lessen the effects on our lives. And we can basically catch things in a Petri dish and say like, How do I want to categorize this? First, I'm going to isolate you, and I'm going to squish you behind a tiny square of glass so I can see you better. And then I'm going to try this, and then I'm going to try this, and then I'm going to try this. And eventually, I'm going to break you apart into tiny pieces until you don't hurt me anymore. Which brings me to part three, the how, the tools. So the first tool is called peek behind the scrim. So I don't know if you've ever seen a play where they use a giant scrim and project shadows onto that scrim. Or maybe they'll just project Uh, an image onto it and you'll be able to see certain figures behind it but like not all of them so that's what the metaphor is here it's a scrim I want you to look behind it and by that I mean realize that this self-concept you have is flexible and it is altered on a dime by you so if you can try on a different perspective chemically just for a moment or two you can see behind the scrim that is your brain that is your life it's just like breaking the spell for the, t- the briefest moment. So I want you to try a mental exercise now. If like you are one of those people who can identify with that feeling of like a negative narrative you hear in your mind. Like if, you, if you're one of those people that, that hears that those negative thoughts. And then you also are like, but no, but that's reality. My Those thoughts are actually just saying what's real. And maybe you think like those thoughts just help you keep in check like they keep you safe they keep you grounded or they just keep you in in what's real if that sounds true for you I want to ask you right now to also examine um, just the openness your mind has to seeing one's own personal worth as flexible and a fl- like a fluid concept by that I mean like if you feel like your inner negative voice speaks the truth to you can you also see that we create our own inner worth based on our beliefs? For example, um, just think of someone who is extremely confident, who loves their self, who in your estimation of them should not just anyone that you can think of. Like that's an example of like, wow, how are they so confident? How are they so self-assured and fearless? Um, I mean, just to call someone to mind, I just watched Expecting Amy last night. Like Amy Schumer to me is so inspiring just because of her inner compass and like her lack of give a fuck. So that would be my example to offer you. So that's a person that's an example of self concept being in complete control of a person's beliefs. So I want you to now try on that understanding for yourself. Can you see that if you were to change brains with Amy Schumer, how she would feel about your life that's different and how that is flexible, how it has everything to do with your particular set of beliefs, not the actual hard facts of your life. That's it. That's the peak behind the scrim. That's all I want you to do right now. <laughs> are you still hungry? This intermission is brought to you by Ada. All right, the next tool I have is called red, green, and blue stars. So I want you to think of a kindergarten class and how everyone might be awarded a star. And maybe that's red star, maybe it's a green star, or maybe it's a blue star, but all the kids are happy about what they win because everyone gets a star. So you may or may not know that what makes us stick to our negativity bias is choosing reference points to measure ourselves against that are unfair. Our brain assigns kind of measuring sticks that are arranged at points that heighten our personal failure. And we have this urge to assign these unfair reference points by default, that's just like our our inclination as human beings. Um, for more about this, there's a really good uh, episode of the Happiness Lab podcast, if you are interested. Um, it's the one with Michelle Kwan. <laughs> but anyway, so if you were to win a silver medal in a competition, your brain would pick the reference point of gold being just out of reach. So you'd be like, ah, I lost gold. You wouldn't be like, woo, I won silver. Or maybe you got a raise, and your brain picks the reference point of a friend who makes more than you do and you'd still feel like ah, oh, but i'm not making that much so how you feel is really dictated by the um, reference points you choose and not the actual success or value of the achievement in itself and this is true of all um, opinions we have of our own personal successes how good we feel about them depends just on the reference points we choose around that achievement so the one that your brain selects is really the most relevant factor because it means we're going to feel a sense of loss more than that of winning more often if we're choosing shitty reference points so we have this automatic urge to pick pick the harshest ones um, and we also tend to do this with like social media accounts like we pick unfair reference points to judge ourselves um, and our lives and our appearances against however once you become aware of this fact, then you can alter the, the things you choose manually. Like, you can choose to select different reference points that are deliberately complementary to feeling good about yourself. So, for example, like with the silver medal, you would choose to look at the reference point of the bronze or not getting anything at all. And you'd have to really fixate on that and be like, wow, I should feel really lucky that I won anything. I mean, I could have lost everything altogether. So the next time, this is the tool, the next time you notice yourself robbing yourself of happiness over what could be a rewarding moment of success, give yourself a green star or even a blue star or maybe even a red star and first check the reference point you are using and reset it to something that allows you to judge yourself as successful and, and grateful for the reward you have received it's basically rewriting your narrative practice and the or rewriting your narrative and practicing the new one and eventually it will become more habituated like your brain will default to the more positive um, grateful reference points just the more you practice this at the start it will feel like you're, you're doing something and you don't believe it but eventually it will become automatic it's like building any new kind of muscle memory Um, so for example, like I bring up Amy Schumer expecting Amy. Um, she is like, she has hyperemesis, which is like vomiting nonstop when you're pregnant because your, your body just feels so terrible. And she, her default is to feel grateful she has access to medical care. And I'm like, Oh, she has good reference points. That's like kind of the automatic thought your brain, you want your brain to have is like the gratitude one versus like, I'm so unhappy because I feel so sick. Alright, next tool is called <laughs> a droplet of perfection in your life's diffuser. <laughs> really grasping at metaphors here. Um, I want you to picture your life's diffuser, like a scent diffuser. And you, I don't know if you guys have ever tried one of those things where it's like a little aerosol, you know, air purifier looking thing and you put little essential oils, droplets into it and it makes the house smell nice. So imagine you're just putting a little droplet of something called perfection into your life's diffuser. Um, so this is a tool for if you journal or if you goal set, um, wherever you do that goal setting, for example, like maybe it's in your journal at the end of the night, or maybe it's while you're lying in bed in the morning. Just this is one way to tweak that intention, but just adding a little bit more balance to it. So you're just going to insert into this process of goal setting, your, your new goal is a is to maintain the tension between productivity and satisfaction. Like that is the holy grail. Because I think all of us set goals for productivity by default. And that's kind of what we're conditioned to do. But if you can set the goal to be a balance, to feel a balance of productivity, but also feel and savor a sense of satisfaction in the day-to-day processes, like in the... Um, the joy of doing something or the satisfaction of completing something on a, on a day to day basis. And, um, meaning like feeling the joy live of growing and evolving and challenging yourself through your experiences that will in some amount to a happier you. Because that's really what the, the holy grail of life is, is to feel a sense of reward and satisfaction in the doing and to also be able to be productive and continue to strive and evolve. But like the doing satisfaction is the thing that will make your life feel really happy and um, worthwhile and rewarding. All right. The next tool is called Upregulate. Um, and so this is about positive rumination and that, another term for positive rumination is positive reminiscence. Um, and it's basically something that people who are better to, able to handle, um, kind of disturbing or upsetting, uh, experiences and not let them bother them tend to have more of a habit of positive, um positively ruminating or savoring their positive emotions in life. And that basically means just reflecting on positive emotions and how they are associated with positive outcomes in your life. Um, And people who do this by, by nature have like lower levels of depressive symptoms. Um, So that's something out of a research study that's related to depression, but I'm borrowing it and applying it here because You can do the same thing that people who automatically do that and just remind yourself to do it and that will actually increase your baseline of happiness. So every time something positive happens to you, as much as you can, deliberately ruminate on that topic. So that means just replay it, retell the story of it from different angles, relive it emotionally, uh, focus, focus on it. Think about it, retell it to yourself basically you're teaching your brain to focus on these types of experiences the The process of mentally reliving positive experiences also calms your nervous system and helps you regulate your breathing it's good for your body so this is kind of a no duh kind of tool but it's more of a gentle reminder because we can condition our bodies to have more access to the wiser parts of our brain and be, basically be like a in a wiser state by doing this. So when you can get into this state physically, you can actually think more clearly and you um, you have more revelations when you're in this physical state of being. Like when you think of positive things, you kind of like calm and tune your body. <laughs> My baby is dreaming right now. The next tool is called mindfully chewing your day. Um, So I'm borrowing the fact that there is a Buddhist meditation where you dedicate the presence of mind as you chew a bite of food. I'm extending that to your list of goals as you move through your day. So basically set a new goal on your goals list um, to enjoy the journey as part of a measure of your life's success. Like your enjoyment is a box that needs to be checked Um, for you to live a successful life and it's basically rewriting your goals so that they're actually about you and your, um, satisfaction in this process. And this is something that takes practice and like, you need to repeat it to yourself and eventually it becomes authentic and true, but quite literally you have to add it to your list of goals. Like add, I need to feel proud of myself and satisfied by the process of my life and enjoy this ride. So um, another way to think about this is like, you are going to be mindfully living your life or like mindfully chewing (laughs) your bite of food. As you move through the experience of your life, you're gonna have to consciously attempt to enjoy it more so that the actual day-to-day feels less like a transaction and less like something to move through and less like a set of motions to move through and more something that you have to consciously savor. And it takes effort to savor sometimes. So like we have to like almost relearn how to do it and um, tell ourselves like, I'm going to be present and enjoy this now. And that's because it's really, really easy to go into a state of unconsciousness. Especially when we're going through routine or especially when we are, um, doing things that we've done a million times, or if we have a lot of stuff to do, it's, it's an energy saving setting. We just go into a state of unconsciousness because our brain is trying to like conserve, um, calories basically. Like we'll go into that default mode of processing where we're just using the things we've already done a million times as like kind of a, a map to follow. So consciously chew your day. That's that tool. All right, next tool, triangulation. So basically I want you to, um, when you are in a state of feeling bad about something or you're not feeling as satisfied by an outcome as you would like to, triangulate by finding a positive reference point. Um, And by that I mean like, negative reference point something that allows you to see where you are as something more positive so draw a triangle to where you are so look at what you have now look back to the moments themselves that have um, that set up that as the highest point of the triangle and you can look at what you have in your life that has the most meaning And, and it's not the stuff it's not the badges like all the experiences that you savor the most in your past Just look at what they are. Just scan now, like, through the past, let's say, three most meaningful moments in your life. I would guess that those are memories that are based in an experience of closeness you had with somebody else. Um, Something where you took a risk, perhaps. Um, Some kind of adventure that was, like, out of the norm for your life they're they they do not tend to be badges like they don't tend to be status related or you know awards related like those things tend to lose their worth over time whereas the moments do not the moments will bring us joy for the rest of our lives okay another version of this tool is called what could have happened so if you have a refer if you're experiencing something and you feel like you should be you know, I'm, you're not feeling as positive about it as you want to immediately think of like what what could have been the worst outcome and this is just like a, a hack, a thought exercise that helps you get to a place of gratitude alright, next tool is called emotionally riveting so you know in like movie posters they always have like that quote from usually Rolling Stone <laughs> it's always very predictable it will be like like uh, a love story like never before. I don't know. Something that's very familiar. So this tool, emotionally riveting, I want you to retell your story just like one of those movie reviews that are, you know, it's kind of being written for the sake of being quoted. So by that I mean research shows that one, one effective coping mechanism that is used by those who suffer... Um, Less of the consequences of negative events is they share that event with somebody following the negative event. So they retell their story. And usually what they're able to do is process. So the more you can retell your story, the more you can kind of integrate it. The more you kind of relive it, the more you can put it into a healthier context. And it really helps to tell somebody else. So this tool is whatever negative event you have gone through or whatever thing you're kind of beating yourself up over I want you to retell that story to somebody else and try each time. If You can do it multiple times to different people. It's helpful. Try to retell it where it has a positive spin, a new positive perspective by the end of the retelling. So you're, you're telling a story that summarizes the plot, but it gives a positive light to the effects of the story itself. Like how you've been able to, um, reframe it or reexamine it so when we can share emotional events with others it's a very um it's a common response that emotionally healthy people have to dealing with like something that's emotionally upsetting but it can affect the duration of time that that event affects us and it can also affect how it um how much it hurts us in the future you know it's like we can just we can we can actually participate in the reauthoring of that event's impact on our on our lives all right the next tool is called recreate your reality i wish i had more tools for um those who are victims of internalized systemic oppression but this is the one that i feel like is the most accessible that I, that i can offer it's kind of a no duh kind of pool, but Tool, but it's it's proven in research that it is vital to share experiences with like individuals, and by that I mean people who have our same types of experiences and in on our t- same types of internalized oppression um, on a regular basis. Like we need to be around others who get it. So whatever group or groups you are a part of that are discriminated against, make it a point to gather in groups of those individuals to share your experiences recount your pains your wounds and quite simply process because it is through a shared experience of reality that individuals can see around the oppression versus simply internalizing it and making it like our fault it doesn't mean that the effects are nil but it just means that it's less toxic to your psyche and it it allows you to have some support and some grounding so because it can be so isolating and so alienating to be just, you know, one person suffering your experience, and it, te- the outside world tends to make you feel like it's your fault. So this tool is just recreating reality via gathering uh, a sample of people that represents reality. So I hope those tools are to- helpful. Um, and before I close, I want to thank my latest sponsors jane on patreon thank you so much and jill via yay with me thank you so very much heidi a huge da- donation from you via yay with me thank you very very much um johanna or johanna johanna i'm not sure how to pronounce your name but i got a huge donation from you as well thank you times a million and pam thank you so very much from a uh, you got gave a very kind donation and i have a new monthly sponsor sasha Thank you so very much. And Olga, donation and monthly sponsor, thank you so very much. I appreciate you guys times a million. Um, you really helped this show happen. Anyone out there who has the means for a donation, it really helps me out. And if not, I totally get it. If you could leave a review on iTunes, that helps immensely. Um, or just share this with somebody who you think could use it. And... Um, if if you guys have any requests feel free to reach out via yaywithme.com i read all of your letters and i read all of your reviews and they, they really touch me thank you so very much so in closing um all effective change begins with confronting a very inconvenient truth and, and basically following it to the next question, and then to the next question, and then the next one, and the next one. It's just a very gradual process that happens on its own timeline. And it, it unfolds. It's not all at once. And although it feels scary, and it feels overwhelming and intimidating, the actual process of change doesn't have to be dramatic or scary. It won't be. It'll happen really slowly. It just takes following curiosity and being brave enough to say... I want this and I mean it and I'm taking it seriously. I'm looking at this. It's very scary to take the first step. Yes, because it just means you're confronting things that are possibly very painful and it might feel like it's too overwhelming, like it's too much or it feels like it's insurmountable. And at the beginning of any process of change, it just, it'll feel like it's chaotic. It'll feel too daunting and that's normal. But you know, just know that it doesn't happen like that. It, it happens on you know on your time it's it's something that you do you can step away from if you need to you can slow down if you want to you can take breaks um so it's it's not how it feels like it will be at the beginning and if you related at all to the part of this episode that referred to kind of that inherent belief system like if you have a belief that you are inherently not good enough that you feel is ingrained in you from childhood experiences then I would say that signals that there is a lot of, a lot of, um, muscle memory. Like there's there's a lot of energy that's stored in your body, that you might need to help process as well. I I did this process with um, I used talk therapy and then also lots and lots of yoga. So I I would say like, whatever you're doing, do do something that's somatics, do something that's physical as well. I encourage you to just try a lot of different things um, just to see what moves you and what affects you and what helps you, what makes you feel more connected to yourself. And just start asking questions about what the patterns in your life show you are in your unconscious beliefs. Like if you want to know what your unconscious beliefs are, you can look at the patterns that recur in your life because the patterns kind of serve as a map to what we feel about ourselves that we may not notice, you know, oftentimes it's invisible to us on a conscious level, what we really feel about our own worth. And it's just because it's so buried, it's so protected, it's so shielded. It was for me because the brain protects us from a lot of things that are too painful. Um, and I know everyone says this, but for some reason it doesn't mean anything when people say it, but life is really, it is about the journey. It's not the end of a project that is the good part. It's like the the making of things. It's the doing of things. That's the majority of your life. So if you're not enjoying that part, if you're not enjoying the day-to-day, then I would say like that's a really good assignment to tackle. Is like I want to make this a priority. I want to I want to have joy in my day-to-day. So just start there. Say I mean it. And then it's about spotting the next step and maybe that means you're just finding a new resource and maybe that's talking to a friend about your experience or asking them about their experience etc. Take tiny steps at a time so I hope this is helpful, I hope something resonated and feel free to reach out if you have any questions or comments or requests and I send you my love and don't forget to smile Uh